everybody, it's Matt. Welcome or welcome back to the Journey Church Podcast. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you automatically get our weekly episodes. And you might want to subscribe to our Journey Callaway YouTube channel as well. You'll find messages, music, interviews, inspiring stories, and more for you right there. Happy Father's Day to all you dads out there. And ladies, you can sit back and enjoy today because I want to talk directly to all the men. Married, single, young, not so young, grandfathers, fathers, wannabe fathers, scared last night, may have made you a father. All of you men lean in for just a minute. Let's have a candid conversation about the menace, myth, and mayhem of autonomy. I've never met a man who didn't have a plan to pursue autonomy. Autonomy is the ability to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, and have enough money to pay for it. And I have never met a guy who wasn't following a plan to achieve that. There are several reasons why. I mean, first, we see it and we celebrate it all the time, don't we? It's part of the American dream. The people we celebrate in our culture are people who seem to have the independence to do whatever they want to do whenever they want to do it. And that looks really appealing. Not only that, but if you grew up in a family where there wasn't that freedom or where you didn't have that luxury, if it's a family where money was always tight and the family was always stressed, mom or dad couldn't stop working at a job they hated, well, autonomy doesn't feel like a nice-to-have benefit for you, does it? It feels like a must-have because we are adamant about not putting our family through what we experienced. And then, let's be honest, our pursuit of autonomy is often fueled by our ego, too. And in all the conversations with men who pursue autonomy, I have never heard one of us question whether we'd be able to handle autonomy once we got it. We just assume autonomy is going to be all positive for us. And then we can't for the life of us understand why some men get autonomy and then make decisions that blow it. We're just certain we're not gonna do that. The frustration that we often have though is that autonomy never seems to come big enough or fast enough for us, does it? And as that frustration lingers, if you're not careful, you'll begin to develop a simmering under the surface anger that you're gonna start carrying with you. I think it hits guys most frequently when they're in their 40s or their early 50s, but it can happen anytime because The minute you begin to think, well, I'm not there yet, and I'm not even close to there yet, and I'm not sure I'm ever going to get there, well, that's when the frustration starts to build. But here's the problem, and this will explain the behaviors of a lot of guys we know. It may explain your behavior. Men are rarely aware that their frustration is coming from a lack of progress towards autonomy. So, you know what we do? We turn our frustration, we turn all that anger on what or who we can actually see. So let me just be clear, gentlemen. If you aren't happy with your wife, with your kids, with your car, with your career, maybe because you aren't happy with you. They're they're an easy target, but they're not actually the problem. So if you have or you're about to make some decisions that aren't wise in any of those areas, well, need to look in the mirror and remind yourself, you married her, you raised them, you bought it, and you chose it. Your life is a byproduct of the decisions you've made. And you're the only common denominator in all of them. They're not the problem. We are. But when we're confused about what's creating all that disappointment and discontentment, we get lost, don't we? And you know what happens when a guy gets lost. Yep. He drives faster. In the wrong direction. He drives faster into an affair or a divorce. Or into more time at work and less time at home. 
He drives faster away from his kids or drives faster pushing his kids. He drives faster into debt so he can have the car, the truck, the boat, the, you know, fill in the blank of his dreams. He drives faster into a future where he dreams he can just tell the boss where to shove it and walk away from that job whenever he wants. You know why we think about that stuff? Because autonomy is alluring, but autonomy is also dangerous. There is a very fine line between free as I can be and addiction, free as I can be in regret, free as I can be in failure, free as I can be in prison. Autonomy is dangerous because it is an appetite that is never fully or finally satisfied, it is a thirst that will never be quenched. What happens when you feed an appetite? You know, it grows, doesn't it? The more you have, the more you want. You never have quite enough. And nobody believes this, but autonomy is intoxicating. And intoxicated people make terrible decisions, don't they? Intoxicated people refuse to listen to anybody, which means eventually intoxicated people are surrounded by people who have nothing helpful to say. And that kind of isolation leads to more frustration, which leads to more bad decision-making, and, well, you see where it's headed. When King David, probably heard about King David, when King David was about 50 years old, he made his most famous decision. The problem was he didn't know it at the time because we never know it at the time. David had been king of Israel for about 20 years, and when he was younger, he built this reputation as an extraordinary warrior with impeccable integrity. And then once he became king, he built his legacy by securing the nation's borders. He maintained Israel's peace and dominance in the region. And as was the custom for kings in those days, David had multiple wives and concubines. He had all the trappings of being a king. He had women, he had wealth, he had power. In other words, he had all the autonomy in the world. But about the time he hit 50, he wasn't quite satisfied anymore. And you probably know at least a little bit of the story of what happened next. One evening, David's strolling around on the roof of his palace overlooking the city, and when he sees his neighbor's wife bathing in the privacy of her home, gets his attention. Now, I'd imagine this wasn't the first time he'd wandered over to that part of the roof at that time of night and stared in that direction. But this night, he took it a step further. This night, he sends a servant to go over to her house to find out who she is. And this servant comes back, and to the servant's credit, takes a big risk. The writer of 2 Samuel in 2 Samuel 11 tells us that the servant tries to discourage David from making the worst decision of his life. He doesn't just tell David who this woman is. He tries to remind David of whose she is as well. Here's how the writer of 2 Samuel records it. The servant said to David, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam. In other words, you know Eliam, David. They had a relationship. The servant's going, Eliam served you for years as one of your greatest warriors. So this woman, she just isn't a body. She is somebody. She is somebody's daughter. And then the servant reminds him she's somebody's wife. She's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. In other words, hey, you know Uriah too, David. You fought beside him. You've watched him risk his life for you. He's out with the army in a battle right now risking his life for you. This was a servant's way of trying to prod David to say, you know, respect her. Respect them. Don't do what you're thinking. Now, that should have been enough to send David right back inside to enjoy all the autonomy he had. But instead, the writer tells us that David sent messengers to get her. And in that culture, we don't know for sure, but she may have had very little say in the decision. 
So David spends the night with her. He probably sleeps more than one night with her until one day Bathsheba sends word to David that she's pregnant. And David does what he's now in the habit of doing. He decides to use his power to manipulate the outcome because that's what we all think we can do when we have some measure of autonomy. So he comes up with a plan. He gets Bathsheba in on it. Then he sends word to the commander of his army. His name was Joab to send Uriah home from the battlefield with a progress report for the king. Uriah comes back. He gives a report. And then David smiles and says, Okay, Uriah, head on home now. You just spend the night with your wife. Here's a gift bag you can take with you. It's full of Marvin Gaye and lingerie. That part I added. So Uriah leaves, and David's certain his plan's going to work. But the next morning, when David wakes up, he checks in, and he gets word that Uriah did not go home. He slept at the entrance to the palace with the guards that are assigned to protect the king. So, David summons Uriah before he heads back to the battlefield, and he has a question for him. He asks him, Well, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? And Uriah says to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab, my lord's men, are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife as surely as I live? He says, I'll not do such a thing. Think about it. Uriah was free to go, but out of respect and loyalty to his brothers, he said no. He was free to go, but his integrity refused to allow him to do so. So when David realizes that plan didn't work, he makes a change. He insists Uriah stay one more night in Jerusalem. And then at dinner that night, he invites Uriah to dinner where he gets him drunk. And once he's got Uriah drunk, he's like, okay, now this will take care of it. So he points Uriah towards home and says, go see her. But the writer tells us that in that evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. Didn't go home. Now, gentlemen, think about this. When your kids and your wife and your friends tell your story one day, What story do you want them to tell? Listen, you are writing the story of your life one decision at a time. Now, not all decisions carry equal weight. Some decisions fill chapters. Some only fill sentences. But every decision becomes a permanent part of your story. What I know about you is you want to write a story like Uriah's, a story worth telling. Unfortunately for Uriah, David had lost sight of all of that. David had lost his way to the point that he is now willing to do the unthinkable to outmaneuver Uriah and cover up his tracks. So he writes a note to Joab to put Uriah in the most dangerous part of the battle and to pull away from him so he'll be killed. And then he seals a note and he hands it to Uriah to take to Joab. And Uriah delivers his own death warrant to his commander. David has an honorable man murdered. And then the writer tells us when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. But, there's always a but, isn't there? But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. David thought he had outmaneuvered everyone, but he hadn't. David thought he had hidden it, but he hadn't. God had seen And David didn't know it, but the secret was being spread by his servants until eventually everyone in the nation heard. The consequences? They weren't there yet, but they were coming. With one series of terrible decisions, 
David permanently undermined his credibility and his legacy as king. Think about it. What else do you know about David's time as king? This is pretty much it, isn't it? You knew this story. But I'll tell you what was worse than that. David permanently undermined his moral authority with his children, too. I'm not going to go into all the details, but his affair with Bathsheba ended up costing him his family as his kids began to fight with one another, and ultimately one son rebelled and tried to kill David to take the throne himself. David's family was never the same again, and he never regained the respect of his children. It was a pretty high price to pay, and I'm sure you know how it started. Well, I actually didn't read you that part of the story. So, guys, here's how it started. It started this way. The writer says, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, at the time when kings usually choose not to do what they want to do, when they want to do it because they have the money to pay for it, no, at a time when kings are out leading their men, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. But he didn't go with them. David chose autonomy over responsibility, and he stayed when he should have gone. Not only that, but he stayed alone while his men, the king's men, went to battle. Now, the king's men, these were the men who had been with David since his 20s, before he was king. These were the men who had hidden in caves together when King Saul had chased them around. These were the men who had risked everything for David, and they weren't intimidated by him. They weren't mesmerized by the crown. These were the men who didn't hesitate to speak truth to power. These were the men who had no problem confronting David. But they were out to war, and David remained in Jerusalem. David was enjoying his autonomy, going, okay, I'll just let the little people fight the battles now. I don't have to do that anymore. But he didn't realize that without his friends around to challenge him when he was about to do the wrong thing, well, he was vulnerable. I'm telling you, there's nothing more dangerous than autonomy without community. David had lost his community. And because of it, he lost his way. So gentlemen, listen carefully. Autonomy is a trap. It is a myth. And quite honestly, it's an unworthy goal. If you're going to pursue it as your primary objective, you will eventually pay for it. So resist the temptation to chase it. Because eventually, if you do, you'll find yourself isolated and devastated by it. You weren't made for autonomy. You were made for community. That is a much more worthwhile goal. That's a more valuable thing to pursue, to have a small group of friends who know you deeply, share your values, and are willing to speak truthfully into your life, to surround yourself with people who inspire you to live a better life. In the end, listen, it's never as rewarding to live a life doing what you want, when you want, with the money to pay for it. What is far more rewarding is to invest your life in something bigger than and beyond you with the people around you to live a life where you give your life away for the you beside you. That's a worthwhile goal. And if you happen to have autonomy now, you desperately need that community so it doesn't crush you. So I want to challenge you to evaluate your life, to evaluate your decisions, and to evaluate where they're taking you. And then, would you embrace the goal of having that kind of community? Because if you will, you'll write a story worth telling. It'll be a story your friends and your spouse and your kids and your grandkids will be proud to tell. And gentlemen, please remember, in the spring, when it's time for you to go to war, suit up and go with your army 
Don't leave yourself autonomous and alone. Let me pray for us. Father, would you give us the wisdom to see and to know when we're about to run into trouble, when we're pursuing autonomy and um, danger is up ahead. Would you give us the wisdom to see it coming a long way off and then the courage to surround ourselves with a community of people who are honest enough and willing to speak right into that and to warn us, to encourage us, to keep us from letting autonomy run over us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, if you'd like more content like this, subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our Journey Calway app to access all of our recent message content. And our app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend. For more information on our church, be sure to visit journeycalway.com. That's journeycalway.com. Thanks for listening.